As we prepare to re-engage with God's Word in Hebrews this morning, I just want to ask you, where did you find yourself considering Jesus this past week? The author of Hebrews was exhorting his readers, and God was pleading with us when we find ourselves in the midst of temptation and trial to rivet our attention on his son Jesus and trust that he is better. Uh, This past week, I found myself um, outside of Hebrews, but needing to be reminded by the truth that Jesus, God incarnate, the one who didn't have to but humbled himself to become a man, is a servant. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this was my go-to this past week, something I needed to be reminded of over and over again um, in light of my own selfish tendencies as I look at Jesus and see how selfless he was and is. If you didn't find yourself considering Jesus this past week, it's not too late. (laughs) It wasn't meant to be uh, an instruction that carried over for one week and now we move on. The life of following Jesus is God revealing things about himself to us that we, we strive to apply to our life from that point on. And so where can you be considering Jesus this week? Where can you rivet your attention to him? In particular, something he's revealed about himself to you that will help encourage you in times of trial and temptation that you face. Before we get back into Hebrews, I want to spend a moment praying for another local church that we are in close partnership with and brotherhood with, and that would be Terranova and North Adams. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Terranova Church um, in Saratoga is a part of a family of churches called the Terranova Network of Churches, of which there are three, Terranova and Troy, which was planted back in 2006, Terranova Saratoga here planted in 2013, and then Terranova and North Adams, our newest church plant in 2016. And so we have not spent time yet since the start of 2023 praying for our brothers and sisters over there, and I'd love to do so this morning. Uh, There's a few things, um, as I talked to Pastor Paul Gordon, who's the lead pastor over there and also the executive pastor of the Terranova Network of Churches. Um, He serves us well as three churches in partnership with each other. Uh, He helps us leverage the best of what we have to offer each other for encouragement and resourcing and things like that. Uh, He said there's three, well, multiple things um, that we could be praying for for them. They just want to know the joy of baptizing at least one new believer in 2023. So we can be praying for that. He asked for prayer for God's continued provision for their church, financially in particular, and particularly from internal giving. So those of you who aren't familiar with church planting world, uh, one of the strategic ways that church planting has happened in the past several decades anyway, and probably forever, is longer established churches and networks of churches will contribute money to a brand new church plant for uh, a limited period of time. Um, And then they will kind of wean off of that. And then Um, with greater health and strength from within, be able to depend upon their their internal giving more and more. What we're finding is that there are churches in hard places, especially rural places, especially where there's tough ground. And uh, the Berkshires of Massachusetts would be one of those places. Um, I think their church last I asked, Paul, was like 60, 50 or 60 on a Sunday, and that would be a big church for North Adams. (laughs) And so... um, Uh, Nonetheless, some of that external support is beginning to pull back, and so they're trusting God is going to provide more and more from those who call Terranova North Adams home, but we can be praying that way. And then for more workers for the harvest out there, in particular for leadership, uh, Paul desires to be able to invest in uh, another uh, leader, uh, elder, um, or uh, potentially a church planting resident, which was somebody who wouldn't stay at Terranova North Adams, but um, that church, and Paul in particular, has a heart to invest in other Uh, pastors who would go out and plant churches in New England in particular. And then also um, their current kids coordinator, some of you may know Elizabeth Hill, she's the worship director out there, uh, also has overseen their kids program. She's going to be on maternity leave soon, but she also plans to kind of step back indefinitely from that role over their kids program. So they're really seeking and need um, someone from within their congregation to step up and serve in that capacity to serve their families and in particular the kids well over there. So would you take a moment with me praying over these needs for our brothers and sisters in Terranova North Adams. Father, we um, come to you as the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the one who um, made the whole earth and everything that is in it, and in all that is yours. And so easy is it to forget that reality. 
um, that we part reluctantly with what we have to serve others or to give towards the kingdom causes that you are most about, forgetting that it's all yours to begin with. I pray that you would bring a renewed insight and understanding amongst the people of God at Terra Nova North Adams uh, to that blessing and privilege to be called into your body and to be used by you for your kingdom purposes, and that that would come in the form of greater um, contribution, even financially, to that cause. Would you provide for their needs, especially from within that congregation, and then allow them to experience the blessing that comes um, from sacrificially giving for your kingdom purposes? I pray, Father, for you to provide uh, workers for the harvest in the form of elders and leaders for that church, in the form of uh, men to come into that church who can be uh, shepherded and trained by Pastor Paul to go out and plant more churches, and for somebody to fill that void, to disciple, to help come alongside of families to disciple kids at Terra Nova North Adams. And then, Lord, I just pray, they asked for the blessing and the joy of knowing the baptism of one new believer. And I pray that you would answer their prayers beyond what they could ask or think or even imagine by blessing them with a multitude of people who would come to Christ by your grace and the mission field that you've given them there in uh, North Adams. So Lord, we love our brothers and sisters in North Adams. Some of us here don't never even heard of the church before this morning, but we are... Um, we are in vital partnership with them in so many ways. We thank, we're thankful for them in the ways they've blessed and encouraged and strengthened us, and may you do the same for them, Lord. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder, we've been announcing this over the past couple of weeks, that there will be a corporate uh, Zoom prayer opportunity with um, Terra Nova Church in Troy and North Adams along with us tonight from 6 to 6.30 through Zoom. Um, it's a half an hour. Uh, and we get right to it. Uh, we spend the lion's share of that time just jumping right into praying for uh, each other's churches, and we'd love to have you on that. It's open to anybody who calls any of the Terranova churches home, and you can get the Zoom information right on our website under the news and events section if you'd like to jump on and pray with us tonight. Back into Hebrews chapter 3, we will be looking in particular at verses 7 to 19 today. We're only three chapters in, and it's hard to remember that, that we're only three chapters in because we've been in this for nearly two months now. Um, but we're only three chapters uh, into a, a letter that was read in a sitting of probably an hour um, uh, that is 13 chapters long. And yet, within this short period of time, we've been confronted with multiple exhortations on the part of the author of the letter of Hebrews exhorting his readers, pleading with them urgently to consider what he has to say. We've come across urgent wording such as, pay much closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away. And last week, consider Jesus, rivet your attention upon Jesus, which he says is essential if you're to hold fast to the confidence that you had at first. And then today we're going to be encountering another key exhortation. All of this is reflecting in the heart of that pastor who was writing to this church in urgency, that there was much that was at stake, eternity was at stake for his readers. And so today, when we get into verses 7 through 19, he's really going to be elaborating on what it means and how we hold fast to the confidence that we had at first. So with that in mind, I'm actually going to start with that phrase of his in verse 6. So we'll read chapter 3, verses 6 through 19 together. If you're able to, I would ask you to stand at this time as we read God's word, and you can either open to that in your own Bibles or feel free to follow along on the screen behind me. It should be there as well. So Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 6 through the end of chapter 3. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they shall always go astray in their heart, 
they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Father, thank you for your word. Open our eyes this morning to see wonderful things in your law. Open our eyes to see things that we need for eternal life. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The main idea from our passage today, sticking with the better theme or better than theme, is that Jesus is the better model. For those of you who are new with us, this is the theme of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. And every week, we really can boil down the main idea to Jesus is better than something. And this week, we see that he is the better model. The better model of what? Well, he's the better model of faithfulness. And we see this especially this morning in contrast to the first generation of the Israelite wanderers in the wilderness who started out well and then stopped trusting in God. In contrast, Jesus, we know from the broader picture and narrative of the New Testament, uh, finished the work of salvation through the cross for us. And so he models for us a faith that finishes, a faith that perseveres to the end. The author of Hebrews in chapter 3, 7 to 19, exhorts his readers, exhorts us to faithfulness, and then he encourages us in how to do that. And he does this by examining Israel, those, that first generation of wilderness wanders, as a negative model. He talks about where they failed, and then he talks about where we can instead succeed through Christ. If Jesus models for us a better faithfulness, that is a faith that finishes, that perseveres to the end, then here's the sub-main idea that we will unpack from our passage today. The faith that finishes fights for a soft heart and lives for a strong body. The faith that finishes fights for a soft heart and lives for a strong body. And we can take from there that sub-main idea and break it down into three parts today. The faith that finishes, what that looks like and means, fights for a soft heart, and then what it means to live for a strong body. So the faith that finishes. Let me just reread so that it's freshly in view for you the uh, portion of the scripture that's probably indented in many of your Bibles. It's a quotation from the Old Testament in verses 7 to 11, where the author says, Therefore, the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The author here is quoting, as he's often done so far, from the Old Testament, particularly from Psalm 95. And the psalmist in Psalm 95 was probably meditating on Numbers chapter 14, which was a part of the narrative of Israel after they had exited Egypt and particularly features their grumbling and complaining towards God and the consequences of therefore not being able to enter into the promised land. And what this first generation of wilderness wanderers from Egypt reveals to us is that it's not enough to start well on this journey of faith. 
or put in terms more relevant to us, salvation isn't ultimately evidenced by how you start. Salvation is ultimately evidenced in how you finish. And this generation of Israelites didn't finish the journey of trusting God all the way to the promised land, which would be to us all the way to the eternal kingdom. Now, they had a good start. If you're familiar with the story or unfamiliar, God's people had been in bondage and in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And where did they go to when they could have gone to a number of other places to resort to their discomfort or to deal with their discomfort and their dissatisfaction and the hardships they were enduring? They could have gone so many places. They went to God. It was a good start. They went to him. They pleaded with him for deliverance from their slavery in Egypt. So they turned to the right source, and he answered their prayers in a miraculous manner, mind you. They experienced his deliverance through 10 plagues being brought upon Egypt to loosen Pharaoh's hand to finally say, fine, go. And of course, he didn't keep his promise and chased after them, so God parted the Red Sea for his people to cross to safety on the other side. They also experienced God's miraculous provision in the wilderness again and again. His guidance in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They experienced provision in the form of food, miraculous bread from heaven called manna that he provided for them when there was no other food, and water from a rock that Moses struck with a staff and God produced water to quench their thirst. And so they had a good start. A good start in the form of faith to trust that God could deliver them and they experienced all kinds of provision in response to that early on in their wilderness wanderings and throughout. But they had a disastrous finish. God manifest himself in these ways that I've mentioned and in so many other ways over those 40 years and yet it was never enough for them. Their normal pattern, their typical pattern was to grumble and to complain and was unbelief. And the quintessential example of that was in Numbers 14, which is what was on the heart and mind of that psalmist in Psalm 95. So what happened in broader detail in that story? Well, Moses sent spies into the promised land. They were on the cusp of entering at this point um, of Canaan, uh, this promised land that God had intended to give to his people. And so these spies go in and they, they see that the people are strong and big and powerful. And so they come back with a negative report to their people. Oh, we're like grasshoppers in comparison to the size of these people. They're going to kill us. Literally, they were worried for their wives and their children perishing by the hand of these, this great foe and uh, of these foreigners that occupied the land that God was bringing them into. And so their attitude of negativity doesn't stay with themselves, but it actually rubs off on the people at large. And the people accuse Moses of leading them into the wilderness just to die. They would have been better off in Egypt. And so they prepare to appoint for themselves a leader other than Moses to take them back to Egypt. Of course, God intervenes at that point. That doesn't end up happening. And as a side note here, as the people of the church in Rome that the author of Hebrews was writing to are hearing this. And the author is citing this passage about the, the Israelites who wanted to return to Egypt. No doubt in their minds they, were, they made the connection of their own temptation to return to their former brand of Judaism apart from Jesus. That was their Egypt that they were tempted to return to because of the persecution that they were enduring in Rome at that time. And while the accusation that the people of Israel in the wilderness were lodging was against Moses directly, ultimately it was against God. Ultimately, God received it that way. And so God says to Moses in Numbers 14, 11, and the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And so the consequence of this situation of the grumbling and the complaining of the negative report that was brought back from the spies was that God swore in his wrath that that first generation, the adults who had been delivered from Egypt, would not enter the promised land, the rest that the promised land was intended to give them. And the key to understanding what seems like such a 
grave and serious consequence for their grumbling complaining is how egregious it was that God had spoken so clearly and delivered them in such a miraculous way over 40 years, and yet they never changed. And in fact, their hearts just grew harder and harder toward God. Yes, they started strong, but they finished disastrously. Now, what's not clear to me here and this is just me being honest about my own pilgrim journey as I study God's word, and maybe it'll be clear by the end of Hebrews. I, I don't know whether the denial of God's people, that first generation of wilderness wanderers, their denial into the promised land was just a physical consequence or it's went to, meant to indicate a spiritual consequence too, that they aren't in heaven as well. I, I don't really know that. Uh, we know that for Moses, for example, he had his own lapse in faith and didn't enter into the promised land, yet we have every reason to believe he's confidently that he's with God today in heaven. I mean, he's an exemplar of faithfulness, as we talked about last week. Regardless of what we're intended to understand about the extent of the consequences for that first generation, here's what is clear. The Exodus story on the whole, by the way, is such a profound metaphor for our own journeys of redemption. And so the rest of the promised land for the people of God in the Old Testament is meant to symbolize the rest of us being with Jesus in his eternal kingdom. And so also what's clear is that for the, audiences, or for the author's audience in Rome, this was a warning that without a faith that perseveres to the end, there is no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This is because the consequences are greater now that Jesus has come. Just like back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, you may remember, the author talked about how rejecting the message of salvation that Jesus brought results in a greater punishment than rejecting the message of the angels in the Old Testament that were given to Israel. And so the consequences of developing a hard heart towards Jesus are, are ultimate, right, to the fullest extent, regardless of what it meant for the first generation of Israel. Here in Hebrews, the action of faith that doesn't finish is described as falling away from the living God. It brings to mind, by the way, those who fell in the wilderness in Psalm 95, we read, because of their unbelief. So that word for falling away is apostani. It means to turn away from. It means to forsake or apostatize from. This is not talking here about a backsliding Christian. The danger the author of Hebrews is Highlighting is not being a Christian at all, evidenced by a faith that doesn't finish and consequently not entering God's eternal rest. That's what's at stake here. This is contrasted, of course, with verses 6 and 14, 6 we read last week, 14 a part of our passage this week, where we're told that we are God's house. We have a share in Christ. By the way, these are verbs that are past actions that are completed. They're done. They're things we can have confidence in, but there's a condition in both cases. If we hold firm our confidence to the end. And so the author of Hebrews assumed this already to be true for some. They could have confidence in this, but also that it would be evidenced, if it was true, by their perseverance to the end in faith. Or to put it in the inverse, if this is more helpful, verse 14 of chapter 3. We could say we never shared in Christ if we do not hold our original confidence firm to the end. That would be the inverse of what the author is saying. So again, last week we talked about how this text isn't calling into question the security of true believers, but it does give the criteria by which we know whether we are true believers. And that is a faith that finishes. Now, for some, understandably, that may be disconcerting for you. You may ask yourself, well, how then do I know that I'm truly saved? I don't know where I'm going to be 40, 30, 40, 50 years from now. I don't know where my journey is going to end up. And that's uncomfortable. This is a tension that we are going to come up again time and again throughout this letter to the Hebrews as we talk about this tension between the confidence we can have in Christ and these warnings that call into question uh, whether or not we're a true believer, there is a tension there, admittedly. And we'll build upon this theologically as we go. Here's what I want to say today. Number one, the intentional discomfort that's in the Bible is there in order to foster a sense of urgency on our part. 
Sometimes what can seem like it's a little bit ambiguous and a little bit unclear is actually, I believe, a biblical strategy to foster in all of us a sense of urgency. Because what it does is it mitigates against a sense of false, a false sense of security on our part, and it urges radical faith. It urges a sober examination of our faith. So we foot should feel a little bit uncomfortable. That's, that's actually the right response here for some of us. Here's what I also want to say. As you persevere in faith, you grow in confidence as to what is already true. That you are not your own, that you were bought at a price, that you belong to God, that you are his house, that you have a share with Christ in his heavenly kingdom. And that because you are his, he promises to keep you, that you will never fall away. You grow in confidence as you persevere in faith in that which is already true of you that past action that is already completed. There are scriptures elsewhere that teach clearly to this idea. I wanted to share one of them with you this morning from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. The whole context there is helpful. Go back and read it later today or sometime this week. 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's what verse 10 says. Peter says pastorally to his readers, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. How? by practicing the qualities that belong to someone who is saved. Prior to that verse is a list of all these virtues that belong to those who are persevering in faith and following after Jesus. What he's saying is, you can confirm what is already true about you. You're calling by God, his election of you, by putting into practice the things that belong to faith. So you don't have to live this perpetual life of ambiguity and uncertainty as to whether you're God's. The way that you grow in that confidence is by putting into practice the things he's already called you to as his son, as his daughter. So there's a tension here, and it's, in, it's intentional on God's part to keep us awake and sober-minded so that we will confirm what is already true about us. So that's a little bit of an exploration of the importance of and what it means to have a faith that finishes in contrast to Israel. But the next piece of this is that a faith that finishes does what? Well, first of all, it fights for a soft heart, the opposite of a hard heart. What does the Bible mean by a heart anyway? It's not talking about that physical, fleshy thing in your chest that's pumping and circulating blood throughout your body that's necessary for physical life. The heart that's in view here by the author of Hebrews is that which is vital for your spiritual life. The heart is used when you look at the whole counsel of God's word metaphorically to speak to things like the intellect and your emotions and your desires and your volition, like your will. So thinking and feeling and desiring and choosing all these things of the inner life, they come out of your heart, from your heart. So the author says here in verse 12 then, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what then is an evil, unbelieving heart? Well, if your heart is the seat upon which you think and you feel and you desire and you choose, then when you have an evil, unbelieving heart, you are in conflict in one of these areas with God and his way of seeing and doing things. The bottom line, put most simply, is that we could say an evil, unbelieving heart is refusing to think that God's ways are the right ways. Examples abound for Israel. One example would be that even though God promised to give them the promised land, in their minds it couldn't possibly be right because the people there were too mighty to overcome and their loved ones might be hurt as a result of entering in. God can't be right here the beginnings of an evil, unbelieving heart. Or Moses can't possibly be the right leader for us because he's led us to the doorstep of this great nation that's going to crush us. Or later on in the narrative, because he's absent for too long up on Mount Sinai, he must have abandoned us. God, he can't be the right leader for us. Or he can't be, it can't be that we're meant to be in this wilderness where we're wandering and we're on the verge of starvation and we're hungry and we're thirsty God can't possibly be good if we're experiencing this discomfort. We can't possibly be where he wants us if we're going through this. All of those things are 
a part of what it could look like or did look like for Israel to express an evil, unbelieving heart. For us, maybe it manifests in the form of God couldn't possibly want me to be married to this person. They're just too hard to get along with, too messy, too demanding, too emotionally all over the place, too social, too antisocial. This just doesn't feel right. It can't be a good fit. It might be the beginnings of an evil and unbelieving heart based upon what we know God has called us to in the way of covenant commitment in marriage. Or more subtly, the way that it works itself in. God says that this form of pleasure and self and self-indulgence is wrong, but maybe it's not a big deal for me to indulge in to this degree or in this measure or in this quantity. I mean, after all, it makes me feel good or feel happy. I feel alive when I do this or experience this. So how can it be all bad? Maybe only this version of this thing or to this extent is wrong. We begin to call into question whether God is right. We begin to exercise an evil, unbelieving heart. This is where an evil, unbelieving heart begins. This is where putting God to the test begins and what that looks like for that first generation. They were reluctant to think that God's ways were the right ways. And it was a snowball effect over time because what that eventually led to and can lead to for us is a hard heart. An evil, unbelieving heart practiced over time leads to a hard heart which ultimately is setting your will against God's will. This is a whole nother level now. And that doesn't happen overnight. It happens by a pattern of turning a deaf ear to God over and over again. It happens by a pattern of an evil and unbelieving heart over and over again. That's how we get to a hard heart. Verses 16 and 17, this is a description through these questions the author was asking later in our passage. He says, for For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? This doesn't happen overnight. Hard hearts don't develop overnight. It comes by nursing a mindset that justifies our way of thinking being better than God's way of thinking, even when it clearly contradicts what God has said. And then eventually it becomes the normal default posture of our heart. Also, notice, it happened over 40 years for the people of God. God is a very patient God. He was not quick to condemn them. He was not quick to resort to the consequence of not allowing them to enter the promised land. Be mindful of that. And so if we have an evil, unbelieving heart and we practice and exercise that over and over, it can lead to a hard heart, which in turn leads to falling away from God. That word falling away literally means turning away from God or apostasy. And the consequence is not entering the rest God provides for those who persevere by faith. This is how Israel got to where they got. This is how Christians, self-professed Christians, can get to that same place if we don't seek to cultivate a soft heart. So if a hard heart then is what leads us to falling away from God, the question is, how do we fight for a soft heart? Well, we do this by cultivating a new posture towards God and his ways, a new impulse. If a hard heart is preceded by the impulse of turning a deaf ear again and again towards God, then a soft heart is preceded by cultivating a posture of yieldedness to God, where we give him the benefit of the doubt and where we take him at his word, very childlike. In, in faith. By the way, to, to have a yieldedness towards God also presupposes we're listening to God. How can we have a yielded heart to him if we're not listening to him? How can we be listening to him if we're not going to him in his word? Which you are today as we're here talking about God's word together, but does that carry on throughout your week in your own personal time with him? I want to give you an illustration, I think, of a beautiful picture and a challenging one of what a yielded heart looks like. Uh, I believe this is a true story. There was a man who was visiting a predominantly uh, black church and he observed something that deeply struck him as the pastor came in and sat down at the piano. I'm never going to do this, by the way, so don't get any ideas. Uh, I don't play the piano. And starts to play softly, closes his eyes, and he begins to just pray, yes, Lord, yes. 
And over and over again, he continues to say, yes, Lord, yes. And eventually, one of the women who is closest to him, who could overhear his quiet prayer in the front row, she begins to say, yes, Lord, yes. And it catches on like wildfire, and eventually the whole congregation is, yes, Lord, yes. And it's just rising in crescendo until they can tell that the pastor has stopped. He's not saying it anymore. And as everybody quiets, the pastor ends up saying, Lord, you heard our answer. Now tell us what it is you want us to do. There's something that's very convicting about that in a good way. That's what yieldedness looks like to God. It's an eagerness to be obedient rather than a reluctantness to trust him. Does that characterize your posture toward God most of the time? Is your impulse to trust him or is it to distrust him? Is your impulse a willingness to adjust your life when you're confronted by something that's uncomfortable in his word? Or are you reluctant to change? Are you eager to say yes to God before even knowing what it is that he's going to ask of you? Because you trust he's good, even if the path he's called you to is hard. Or do you try to avoid those situations that are gonna lead to discomfort or to have to wrestle with difficult truth? The sobering reality for us is that if we identify more with the latter, with distrusting God, with an impulse to avoid the things that are gonna challenge us with truth and to avoid change, you may be on your way to a hard heart. And the warning here is that there is a place called too far. We cannot presume upon God's grace forever. There is a point of no return. And our hearts at that point won't even want. A hard heart doesn't want a way back to God because we've willfully set our own wills in opposition to his. We don't want to get there, guys. May this never happen in our own community under our watch. First of all, guard your own hearts. But may this never happen under our watch where there are those around us we can see going that direction and yet we refuse to step in and do something about it and to encourage or challenge our brothers and sisters around us. Which leads us to our last point. We can't do this alone. We weren't meant to or intended to do this alone. The faith that finishes fights for a soft heart and lives for a strong body. In verse 13, the author says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The more I read the Bible, the more I've developed this, I think I can call it a conviction now, of this corporate responsibility that we have to one another, that we are actually vitally connected with those around us and that we were designed by God to be a part of each other's source of strength and flourishing. And then the opposite is true too. When we don't do this and when we don't get it, what ends up happening is we end up living as disconnected individuals who just happen to be in proximity with each other but are of no use to each other. It would be like if you took apart every individual cell of the human body and pulled them all apart from each other some semblance of a body may remain, but the vitality is gone, the interconnectedness is gone, and eventually that body's going to die. Sometimes, functionally, the church can live that way. And a part of our calling as God's people is to live for a strong body, to live for the success and thriving of what the Bible, the New Testament, calls the body of Christ, the people God has put around us, particularly the local church. For those of us who call Terra Nova home, particularly living for the strength and flourishing of those who are sitting around you right now. Why do we need to do this? Because the author speaks here of something called the deceitfulness of sin, how easy it is to be deceived by sin. Sin is something that we do, but here it's personified as something that actually is like a living thing that influences us. Here's how that works. Sin promises things that are actually good desires, in their original form, things like rest and relief and satisfaction. But it promises those, those things to get them in ways that are contrary to God's will and design for us. And it tells us things like we'll be happier if we listen to our own desires than God's will for us. It tells us, 
you'll be better off in Egypt. You actually will be more satisfied if you go back to doing the way th- things the way that you used to do them. Remember how you used to get pleasure and satisfaction out of living this way before you knew Jesus or were mature and walking with him? That actually was the best way. Why don't you go back and try that again? That's how sin works. That's how sin is deceptive. And here's why it can be so deceitful, because it actually half delivers. It offers a counterfeit form of deliverance on what it promises. We get maybe relief for a time, rest for a time, pleasure for a time, happiness for a time, but you always end up worse off and further from God than you were to begin with. And by definition of what deceitful means, we often, ourselves as individuals, don't see that clearly even happening in our own lives. But by God's grace, we weren't designed to be the only ones to have eyes on our life. He put us in community with other people called the body of Christ to be a part of our journey of keeping soft hearts. This is what Christian community is for. And so the antidote that at least the author gives here is mutual exhortation. He says, exhort one another. Now, exhorting is often, I think, associated with harsh rebukes, and it can be that. But more often than not, exhorting are things like encouraging one another, comforting one another, consoling one another, begging, entreating, pleading with one another. Anything that we need to say or to do to fight for somebody around us having a soft heart and to persevere in their faith. And here's why that's so important. Because it is much harder to be deceived by sin when we are living in honest, authentic community with one another. The author is telling us, don't just have an individual identity. Have a corporate identity. We are in this together. The stakes are so high, guys. They are eternal. They were eternal in Rome. He saw it, and he saw the need for people in that community to step up and call out the drifting that was happening, the unbelief that was happening. We need each other in the body to persevere in faith, to finish the faith. That is what he is saying here. By the way, it works the other way too. Israel was a picture of corporate contamination. Right? The spies came back from the promised land with this negative report and with this grumbling and complaining that spread like wildfire and bred unbelief amongst the rest of the people of God. And it was serious. There was greater accountability, actually, for those who spread that unbelief to the rest of the community. Numbers 14, 36, 37. And the men whom Moses sent out to spy the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of that land died by plague before the Lord. It's serious stuff. In either direction, positively or negatively, we have a bigger influence on each other's lives than we think. I'll go as far to say this. There is a very real sense in which entering God's eternal rest is a corporate endeavor. I don't know how that sits with you. That's something that's just evolved and grown in my convictions as I read Scripture over the years, but it's a community effort. Have you ever, um, have you ever considered the possibility of that being true? Have you ever considered your responsibility to one another in that way? Have you ever considered how guarding your own heart and keeping it soft actually has an impact upon others around you? So very practically then, what does exhortation of this kind look like and how do we live it out here at Terra Nova? There are three things from this passage we could say. In living for a strong body, in living for the strength and flourishing of one another around us, our exhortation must be intentional, reciprocal and habitual. All these things come right out of this passage. First of all, intentional, meaning we have to be intentional about our relationships with one another. You really have to know people, and you have to allow yourself to be known by other people around you. That starts here on a Sunday morning. Don't just, don't, don't rush out of church afterwards. Don't act like that disconnected individual who's just in proximity for a while with other individuals, but doesn't really have any influence or impact upon others and doesn't allow for others to have an impact upon you. Risk being known, guys. Stay around and talk to some people after church. And risk being known by others. Ask people how they're really doing 
and then be willing to really listen to them. And talk about Jesus. Talk about the things that matter to Jesus. Ask people how Jesus is at work in their lives. Ask them how you can be praying for them. Ask them how they need encouragement. Ask them to tell you where they've been experiencing God or struggling with the fact that they haven't been. And I admit that can be hard on a Sunday morning, whether it's because we have to be out of here by 11 and we only have like 10 or 15 minutes because Daniel's preaching for a long time, or because we're parents with young children and we're keeping one eye on them and half trying to stay into the conversation that we're in. And so consider inviting that person you're talking with over to dinner that night or later in the week or jumping in a tribe. There are other contexts here at Terra Nova that are created so that you can experience this deeper community life that's so necessary where we actually have access to one another so that we can exhort each other in this necessary way to persevere to the end in our faith. Diagnostic question for you. Can you genuinely say that there's at least one or two other people at Terra Nova who you really know? Because if you can't answer that question, yes, then it's impossible to live out verse 13. And so consider some of the ways we've just talked about that you can jump in and plug in and be a little bit more intentional in growing in community here at Terra. Secondly, reciprocal. Exhortation has to be intentional, has to be reciprocal. The author says, not just exhort, but exhort one another. It's a two-way street. I'll try to keep this one brief, but some of us may be in our comfort zone where we're identifying where other people are at risk of developing a hardened heart by the deceitfulness of sin. But we think that we're seeing things clearly. And I want to suggest that there could be some pride there. And I want to be encouraging you to be just as open to receiving exhortation as you are to giving it to others. And if you're also a strong and confident personality and you project that way, you may need to humbly ask others to input into your life because they may either assume you already have it all together or you may be a difficult person to approach, kind of intimidating. But I'll tell you, it's to your benefit to open yourself up to exhortation because otherwise, without anyone speaking into your life, you might be blind to the things that could lead to a hardening of your heart. Finally, Exhortation needs to be intentional, reciprocal, and then habitual. Exhort one another every day. For those of us here who think exhortation should be occasional, because maybe we only envision it as being something where it's a harsh rebuke of those around us, and that probably shouldn't be the occasion for your everyday interactions with the same people you're around all the time, the author of Hebrews nonetheless challenges us that this perspective of exhortation being an occasional, infrequent thing is lacking of the necessity and the urgency of how easy it is for us to be deceived by sin and to develop a hard heart. He says here to exhort one another daily. He says that this should mean that it's something as natural to us as eating or sleeping or reading our Bibles personally and praying personally. Now let me remind you, exhortation doesn't have to be heavy-handed correction all of the time. It's probably not most of the time. Most of the time it's probably encouraging and comforting and consoling and pleading for one another. It could be a phone call where you're checking in on somebody who had mentioned that they were having a hard time recently with something or sending someone a text who said that they were anxious and afraid of something that was coming up, just checking in with them, encouraging them. Those can be forms of exhortation. I actually think that the more heavy-handed forms of exhortation, of correction, that have to happen sometimes in Christian community are because the other kinds of exhortation don't happen frequently enough. And so somebody is already too far down that road of developing a hardened heart or being deceived by sin. So as we live to strengthen the body of Christ around us through exhortation, we need to be intentional about it. We need to be open to reciprocation and we need to make it a habit, the norm for our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, the author says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As long as it is called today. Tara, it's not always going to be called today. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. Life's rarely predictable. And we have to seize the opportunity to exercise faith when we have it. 
One of the great deceptions of the enemy of God and man is to get us to live as if we are immortal, as if there's always going to be a tomorrow, even when we know better. To put off the things that we know are important because we assume that there will be another day, that there will be tomorrow to deal with it. And it's a great lie. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, the author says. That goes for the fence sitter here today who's never trusted Christ before and has been content to perpetually have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. It goes for the professing believer here today who's had their conscience pricked by what you're hearing God say, that for far too long you've justified a way of thinking or doing or living that you know is contrary to God's way. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It goes for the believer here today who knows someone in your life, maybe in our own church family, who's been on a path of destruction and you've not taken action yet to intervene. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We have an amazingly patient, gracious, and merciful God who proved it by being as patient as he was for 40 years in the wilderness with his people, who proved it even more by sending his son to die for those who were still in rebellion against him. But God's justice and his holiness demands a payment for sin, and we are putting God to the test when we continually presume upon his grace. There is a point called too far, Terra Nova. But it's not yet, because there is still a today. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let's pray. Father, I just take and I, your words, your word, and I pray that you would by your spirit apply and do with it as you will to our hearts this morning. Would you graciously and mercifully not let any of us go down a road that would lead to a hardness of heart God forbid falling away from you. Would you awaken hearts where we need that this morning? Would you encourage and inspire us by Jesus' own example as the better model of faithfulness who persevered through the cross for us? Would you compel us to live out those virtues of what it means to be a people of faith, to be your sons and daughters, to be a part of the family of God so that we could, be, we could confirm our calling and our election and not live as people with, who have a great uncertainty? Would you compel us to, to fight for soft hearts in our own lives where we've been tempted to presume upon your grace for far too long? And would you compel us to reach out and speak truth over and into the lives of those we see on a pathway to destruction? We pray for your help and your grace in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. And guys, I just want to say, too, that uh, there's going to be a lot of heavy times in, in Hebrews, heavy moments. Um, with where God's word confronts us, with things that are going to be difficult for us, challenging to us, deeply convicting to us. Hopefully, I hope, that's good, as painful as it may be. And so the last thing I would want for there to be is a hurdle for, for you between that potentially lonely experience of deep conviction and knowing what to do with that and where to go. Please, whether it's after the service today, find Pastor Matter myself, there are many godly people I'm looking at in this room who you could turn to and say, this is what's going on in my life. I don't know what to do with this. But don't wait. That's the, that's the point of what God is saying today. Don't wait. But we're here for you.